This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to be a Ugandan national living, studying, and working in various places? In this episode, Mandela shares his journey of making sense of the manifestations of racism, as well as his ability to identify them and speak up. I'm Fumi, this is Hashagar Racism, and this is the story of Mandela. Mandela was born and raised in Uganda. He says that many Ugandans are oblivious of racism due to their history, making Uganda seem, using Mandela's words, post-racial. As a result, they only learn about it when they leave the country. So the thing about Uganda is that people are oblivious about racism because it's just not there. And that's mainly because we've never really been in a place where we've interacted very intimately with uh, other races, and I would say specifically Westerners, because right from the time colonialism were protectorate. So what that means is that we're not a settler colony. We were free of influence of Britain then, but there was not a significant settler population there. So the closest we had, the closest encounter we had with racism was with the Indians who the British brought. When the British left, the Indians are the ones that were trying to posture themselves to become superior race, and then they got kicked out of the country. Not kicked out, they got expelled. So because of that, a lot of Ugandans are very naive about racism because obviously it's something that's not there in the country, so it has to come from out, and um, you know, it just it just hasn't happened. And um, many people who are Ugandan get to experience it when they because Ugandans are going to treat everyone normally, right? So regardless of your race, once you're in the country, yes, you might get a few stares from kids and even sometimes old people in the remote areas, but it's more in a curiosity way than in a way of uh, someone trying to demean you or dehumanize or anything. It's really innocent curiosity many of the time that this happens. So a lot of Ugandans only encounter racism once they're out of the country. And many times it falls on them like a bag of potatoes because it's just like, what happened? Or many times they may not even even understand what's going on unless someone breaks it down for them. So that's why I say that there's a very, very big, sense of naivety around racism but that notwithstanding there is white privilege in the sense that someone is white and in the country they'll, they'll get treated better than someone who's non-white so there is a semblance of that which is sick in its own way but that's how the world operates and i think it's something that people can't run away from right from when you're a child and you're watching tv so those are these influences that come through the external world and impact how people think. 
and interact with races. So I would say there is conditioning to uphold white privilege, but besides that, there wouldn't be racism in the country or there is not strong awareness about it. Mandela nonetheless identifies tensions between communities within Uganda. There's a significant Indian population and and the Indians prefer to live in their own communities. They don't really mix with the population and they are known for not treating their employees well who are Ugandan. So one can pick out from that that there is a sense of racism there, but because they do not yeah, yeah, they do control sensitive sectors of the economy, but it's not in a way that you're forced to interact with them. You, know, you could go about your business without interacting with them so much, unless you're in certain kind of businesses. So regardless of it being there, it's not something you interact with every day because many times you forget about the existence. But for those that interact with them more closely, they do highlight the fact that there is a kind of uh, racism element in the interactions with them. So if we were to zero down on racism in the country that's active or that's indigenous, that could be the, a lens for interrogating it. Mandela left Uganda and went to Italy and the Netherlands to pursue his studies. He says that he doesn't recall experiencing any overt manifestations of racism during his time in Europe. When it came to my time in Italy, because uh, I was in Venice, to be honest, I don't remember any any kind of experience that's overtly racist. You know? So perhaps there could have been some covert experiences where maybe someone says something or... But I can't really think of anything overt. But that's attributed to the fact that Venice is an international space and it's very spread out because we're on a remote island. And the vibes are so chilled that everyone seems relaxed. It's more like a retirement place, a lot of old people. So I guess because uh, of certain unique dynamics, or maybe I was lucky or whatever, but I really didn't get into any kind of situations where, you know, there was overt racism. And then I moved to the Netherlands in Maastricht, an international student city. So, and the Netherlands is, I would say, a comfortable country to live as a foreigner. So, you know, while the Netherlands as well, you know, I wouldn't recall any overt experiences I had that are you know, racist or anything. And yeah, so my first, I would say, tour of duty in Europe went very well. <laughs> Although for some time when we were in Kosovo, we took a trip there. And uh, it was a weird vibe because um, obviously Kosovo is very homogeneous. Uh, but I wouldn't say there was any kind of negative vibes or feedback. It was, it seemed more of curiosity than negative. So you'd be walking on the streets and some of the kids would be yelling the names of American rappers they know or some of the African footballers while smiling and giggling. So it was more of, I would say, curiosity for them encountering someone of African descent than having negative, sinister motives behind, you know, 
Mandela left Europe and moved to South Africa to continue his studies. He says that South Africa was the place where racism and issues around race were the most salient for him. The irony is that after I left Europe and moved to South Africa, that's really where racism is raw. South Africa is a very complicated country, obviously, but I would say in many aspects, you're more risk cautious there than you would be when you're in Europe, which is so weird. But everything is basically about race in South Africa. It's weird that you'd imagine being in Africa, you didn't have to be in certain mind spaces that you end up finding yourself in when you're there. But I think during my time in South Africa, that's when I uh, probably been the most cautious about, about race because it informed everything, the conversations, the places you go to, the bars, the restaurants, the some white places and then the black places. There are no rules written, but practice, you end up preferring to go to certain spaces because you'd be more comfortable there than in others. So I'd say that's, that's probably one of the places where racism lingers in the air constantly. Mandela recounts two incidents in South Africa where he realized how his own understanding of race and racism hampered his ability to read and assess the situations he found himself in. We were going to a hotel in a vineyard in Stellenbosch. Stellenbosch is a predominantly white area. The Boers also call themselves the Afrikaners. So it's, it's an area that's really beautiful and rich and well-off. And... Um, while we were there, we got lost trying to find the hotel I was supposed to go to. And I'd volunteered to go and ask for directions to the hotel. And we had stopped at a winery that's also a farmhouse of sorts. Right before I went in, I was signaled by my friends to come back to the car. When I went back to the car, they told me that for a minute they had not been conscious about uh, what was happening, but that it would be very risky for me to go in there to ask for direction. So it has to be someone else, probably one of the white people that was in the car to go ask for directions because if I went in, it would be assumed that I'm up to no good and it could easily end up bloody, like you could actually get shot. So that was a very weird moment because it was sobering, but it was also shocking. It was just so many things that I had to process at that moment that I don't think of regularly. And that's the difference between us who come from countries where we live in a post-racial world and where we believe the world is post-racial and our counterparts in these other countries where they constantly have this racism. And there is that gap between us and, you know, because if it were one of my South African counterparts, this is something that's constantly in their mind. They would not even go. And here I am with my naivety or my lack of constant awareness about the situation because that's just not a space that I've grown up in. So it was a lot to have to process and digest and then to reprogram myself so that I don't put myself in a situation like that again. So I'd say that was one of my first and most of our encounters with racism. And also, like, I mean, like, it's how, like many times when we go to restaurants in Cape Town, we'd 
definitely be the only black people who are on the restaurant. You know, and it was very shocking because sometimes I don't even ask, ask myself where I am because for a minute you, you really think you're in Europe you know, and you have to remind yourself, oh, no, I'm actually in South Africa. And the only other black people that you're going to see are the people that are waiters and waitresses and all that who actually will serve you with less courtesy than they serve the white patrons because they think well, the black people don't tip enough or whatever. So they're going to attend to you, but not with as much enthusiasm as they will to the white patrons. So that was also another constantly sobering reality. And yeah, and then I remember this one incident as well. Went to this posh bar and restaurant, uh, very Victorian themed and all. And before the night ended, while we were putting on our jacket, these white girls woke up to me and my friend, who's African as well, and they're like, where's the exit? And then he's like, oh, so we look like we work here. Now, I wasn't even aware about what's going on. And then this girl started to apologize. Oh, we're very sorry. They didn't say they thought we worked here, but when he, when he asked the question, and they apologized for making the assumption. And I was very benign. Like, and I would have written it off as, you know, someone just being lost, but no. And he, he was able to read through it immediately, but I didn't realize, you know, and that was another reflection of my limited exposure. Mandela recently had an encounter at the Istanbul airport in Turkey that went viral on social media. Mandela was lining up at one of the restaurants named Talinda Anadolu, where all black customers walking in were automatically assumed to be cleaners at the airport and were served a free meal consisting of chicken and rice. Mandela says that he was angry that no one seemed to recognize the issue. The most annoying thing was that no one was paying attention to this, or no one cared to even do anything about it, through the managers. And when I got to the serving line and I got given that, I had a confrontation with uh, the person serving, and I'm like, no, I don't want this food. I know what I want. It was just so frustrating because even with the intervention of the manager whom I asked to talk to, she acknowledged that this was happening. And then when I asked her, okay, then why aren't you doing anything about it? She had no answer that she could give. And uh, it was so frustrating because the police got involved and I tried to make a statement, you know, to officially like put it on the record about what's happening there. But it's just the whole system was just so frustrating because to file a police report, you had to get out of the airport, walk across the street, that you need a visa. So in the end, I, I didn't file anything formal as I, as I wanted to. Uh, but it was so annoying. Actually, it was really aggravating because this was only happening to people that were black. And someone who was coming in who was non-black was automatically assumed to be paid and were not given the same food. And the food looked like shit as well. You know, because it's free food given by the, by the restaurant. So what do you expect? It's not the most mouth-watering meal for sure. And to have to subject a specific kind of people to that, it's it's just it's, it's, it's dumbfounding. So yeah, that was a really nasty experience uh, that I had at the airport. That's not something you'd expect in an international space. 
but what was even more annoying was the manager who actually at some point tried to justify it by saying that first is the gaslighting going like no you're not understanding what's going on i'm like what the hell do you mean and Mosara's going on this is racist and she's like no it's a misunderstanding like what do you mean and she goes on to say that the waiters and the people serving food assume that everyone who's walking in that's black works at the airport. Can you imagine? Like, this is like an explanation. I'm like, you know, they think that, and you don't do anything about it. Like, how is that okay with you as a manager? So it got really ugly with her. Um, but you know, I was able to contain myself, although I was really livid. Um, I hope the police would get would be interested in it. They didn't seem super enthusiastic about resolving it. They didn't even seem to see a problem. I really had to go out of my way to try and explain to them that what has happened here was intolerable. So it was really frustrating because it seemed to be systematic in a way. Mandela reflects about why he spoke up at the restaurant, something he would not have done when he was younger due to two main reasons. One, his lack of awareness on issues around racism. And two, his lack of confidence to speak up. There are these times when you let things slide. Like, there could be a racial experience, but it's just like, you know, I'm really not right now willing to get into this or you're not 100% sure. And then later, you're like, okay, maybe I should have done something. So you have this kind of experience where you let things slide. And I think every time you let something slide, it builds up, it builds up, keeps on building up, right? Because you hate yourself for not having spoken up, right? And so when you get to a certain point and it happens, it's just like when a volcano explodes, you know, it's just been like keeping a lot of uh, pressure has been building, but it's been bottled. And then there'll be this one incident when something will, will have this encounter and then you'll just explode because it's just been bottling up so much. Because I've been, I'd say been one or two times when I've let things slide where I should have probably not. And, you know, because you castigate yourself, you're like, okay, if this happens again, I'm going to go like, not if I... So yeah, so I would say it's a combination of that. But also most importantly was that in, also in this case, which is another issue is that many times you second guess yourself. You're like, did this really happen? Or am I imagining that these guys are being racist, right? And so in that specific context, would there be some other people to actually corroborate what you're thinking? Because sometimes you may think you're overreacting or whatever. And in that specific case in Istanbul, people are sitting right next to me, corroborated what I was thinking. Because the ones who walked up to me and were like, okay, what's happening? And I'm like, is I described what's happening, but before I'd even spoken for I'd say more than three sentences, you know, he's like, Oh my god, I've noticed that. And he's not even black, he's, he's Arab, Arab French. But he had these suspicions already, and we kind of pointing this out in a way we corroborated each other. You know, and those are very unique experiences, obviously, whereby your thoughts corroborated by someone else in the space. Otherwise, you come off as this angry, black, confused guy who's overreacting over some trivial thing, right? 
So I'd say there are many things that aligned, which just made it imperative, yeah, that that specific restaurant really had to be called down you know, on what they were doing. But obviously, they, I'm not sure I would have done that if I was still young. Now you're more confident. And you're actually a lot more confident when you know and you're sure about what is going on. And you have no doubt that if you went before an authority or, or a third party, that you can make your case. So there's just that strength that comes from knowing that you're on the right side and that if there is any reasonable law that is going to back you up. So there's that confidence as well, because it's, it's a scary thing. You know, in a foreign country, you could get arrested and all that, but you're just thinking, look, even if I got arrested or whatever happens, at the end of the day, if this came before any kind of reasonable authority, I am on the right side. Mandela reflects about the meanings, usages, and implications of the term prejudice. Although many times we are forced to have stereotypes about certain people, I think it's okay to maintain the prejudice because ultimately I think prejudice is to be human, you know, to have a framework, a hypothesis within which you're going to interact with someone. And it's obviously going to be based on what they look like and what someone who looks like them represents, at least in your world or in your mind, right? So that's just something human. And for someone to say they are not prejudiced, they are not being honest. We are all prejudiced. But I think what should happen is that you maintain your prejudice, but it should be a hypothesis. And then interact with someone and then get to find out who they are. But the prejudice should be benign. It should be an innocent prejudice per se, just a framework for how you're going to interact with someone. But it shouldn't necessarily inform how you interact with them. And then probably you can confirm or negate your stereotypes based on how your interaction is with a person. Because sometimes it does help to have a framework within which people function. I also feel like the word prejudice is negative. That's the problem. But maybe if there's a more neutral word than prejudice, I would say that a better word that I prefer to use, which means the same thing as prejudice, but it's less negative, is the word predisposition. So I feel like it's necessary, actually, to have a predisposition of how you think someone thinks and how someone interacts with people because ultimately it's going to inform how you interact with people. So the most important thing is that it's not negative, but that you're actually nursing predispositions based on good intentions. And many times people that have solid predisposition like people who've actually taken off time to study about the history and all of life of other people besides where they come from so in a way it is actually good to to have constructive predispositions when you're going to interact with certain people so that you don't come off as offensive or rude or 
annoying or just repugnant. So in a way, having predisposed thoughts that you've invested time and effort into creating is not necessarily a bad thing. Mandela has the following to say about why he thinks being anti-racist means in practice. I would just say the most important thing is to try and humanize everyone. And just, although people look different and may act different, it's just to appreciate that, you know, the same feelings you have, someone has them, they feel the pain that you feel. And I mean, it's shocking that people have to tell other people to do this because you'd expect that it's natural but it's not. And I personally don't think racism is something that can be removed from human interactions. It's always going to be there. And it's such a complex notion because racism goes beyond, it's not just about color and all this because that is racism from the European perspective. Then there's racism from other perspectives as well. I don't know about other parts of the world, but in Africa, when you look at the Rwanda genocide, the Tutsis and the Hutus basically each other as a separate race, right? So it's a social construct that has very different understandings in different contexts, different parts of the world. In Yugoslavia, the same thing, you know? So at some point, it's a very thin line between nationality and racism because they can be interchanged. So... That's the question we need to be asking, because even within our own countries, we call it something else, call it tribalism or regionalism, or but it is racism. Uh, where you think your specific ethnic community that you belong to is better than the other, and that is more deserving, which in a way is also tied to the very notion of self-preservation which is human, because the people that look closest to you are people that you relate with the most. So it's a very broad question, but I just feel like at the bottom of it, understanding that actually a biblical verse would answer that, which is love your neighbor as you love yourself. You can find more information about racism in Uganda, as well as other articles, books, and videos Mandela recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and Hashtag Our Racism. See you in two weeks. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. Other music by Pete Morris, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Mandela for his invaluable time and energy in reliving for us his difficult experiences and sharing with us honest reflections on this issue.